When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. And I'm a great believer, not in authenticity. I'm a great believer in transparency. I can get on with a dickhead if I know that's who he is. Welcome to The Art of Charm. I'm Jordan Harbinger, and I'm here with producer Jason DeFilippo. Today, we're talking with my good friend, Steve Sims. He's a wild child, what can I say? He's the CEO and founder of Bluefish, which you've never heard of because it's an exclusive members-only luxury concierge for VIP and executive clients. And I'm talking about people that are either super well-known that you see everywhere or just unknown but are completely loaded beyond all belief. And he helps clients discover and then achieve just life-changing experiences. He really doesn't make his clients wild as dreams come true, He helps the clients find and receive experiences they never would have even thought of in the first place. This guy has a very unique business, and today we'll discover how a blue-collar kid from the UK networks with and befriends the rich and famous, and how you can take a page from his playbook for your own personal and professional relationships. We'll also learn how to get rid of unhealthy relationships and clients that are driving us crazy, as well as how to screen for them in the first place, and we'll uncover some of the tactics that Steve uses to create connections and networks that are unrivaled, I cannot highlight that enough, and turn something most of us dread into his strongest competitive advantage. And don't forget, we have a worksheet for today's episode so you can make sure you solidify your understanding of the key takeaways here from Steve Sims. That link is gonna be in the show notes at theartofcharm.com slash podcast. Like I said, he's a bit of a wild card, and that's why we love the guy. So enjoy this episode here with my friend, Steve Sims. Steve, welcome back to the show. It's been a long time. I mean, we've hung out in the interim, but you haven't been on the show in like four years. Has it been that long? Wow. Gotta be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it has been a while. Yeah, mastermind. Yeah, so long time, long time. Yeah, you have been up to a lot. You wrote a book, which I gotta say, I was a little surprised most of the writing I've seen you do is on your iPhone with two fingers. Yeah, and I spell badly even then, don't I? Yeah, well, you know, this is a real book you got here. <laughs> it's, it's a real hard bag. Yeah, there's no pop-ups, no pictures. No pictures. Well, all right, way to unsell it. However, <laughs> blue fishing, the art of making things happen, makes perfect sense to me because this is really what you do. You make things happen for people that they didn't even necessarily know they we're thinking about. Can you give us a quick one-two overview of what Bluefish is? Because it is unique in terms of the business. There's really not a lot of people out there doing this. Yeah, well, we're a high-end concierge that's been called by Forbes an entrepreneur, the real-life Wizard of Oz. What we've become famous for is things like sending people to the Titanic, sticking them on stage to sing with our favorite rock star, getting them married in the Vatican, closing down museums, opening up 
a table of six at the feet of Michelangelo's David and having Andrea Bocelli come in and serenade them during the dinner. So we're the guys that basically make it fantastical and out of this world. There's a reason that people will say, okay, I trust you with, I would imagine, a fairly large sum of money to do what other people think is impossible. The trademark that I think of when I think of you, the sort of quintessential Steve Sims item was, of course, getting married at the Vatican, but also there's a photo that you show where there's this couple having dinner right next to the statue of David in the museum with no one else in it. That kind of thing is incredible. And the only way to get that to happen is through relationships. You could be a billionaire and still not have the ability to do that on your own because you need to have those kinds of relationships. And those are the relationships that you've been building for pretty much your whole career. Yeah, there's something that happens when you start getting to that kind of fantastical stage, the money becomes secondary. You walk up to the academium in Florence and say, hey, I want to shut it down on Tuesday for a dinner party. How much is it going to cost? They're going to hang up on the phone on you because quite simply, a lot of people at that level don't want to be bought and sold. So it's that negotiation of, well, why should I open up the museum? Why should I let you in here at midnight? You know, why should these things happen? And you've got to let them know why it's a great idea for, for them to let you get your own way. This is not only a persuasion job, but a relationship job, right? You can't cold call these people either and say, hey, look, I got to check with your name on it. It's going to be as much as it needs to happen. Because like you said, they don't want to be bought and sold. But also, you can't just say the right combination of words and convince people to do this. You've got to have some relationship in place beforehand. So we're fond of saying here at The Art of Charm, dig your well before you're thirsty. What are you doing to dig the well? How are you crafting and creating these relationships in the first place? Well, nine times out of 10, I piggyback. So I will look after someone. And then when I need something, I will look at my pool of contacts, partners, vendors, relationships, and find out, do they know anyone in that other person's sandpit that could get me closer to what I want? Because there's nothing stronger than someone whispering in your ear that you trust and you think is credible that says, hey, you may never have heard of this guy before, but you know, take his call, listen to what he says. Now, if you get that call, nine times out of 10, you're open to listening. Um, and if I can then come in and go, hi, I believe Jordan told you I was going to give you a call. Look, this is what I want to do. Then they're a little bit more open to it than if you, by argument's sake, had managed to find the right number and got through the gatekeepers and phoned them cold. So I'm a great believer in get someone credible to actually phone ahead of time to bring you in as a warm lead. Right, of course, the warm introduction makes perfect sense in crafting those relationships they branch out over time, right? So you make a warm relationship with somebody like me, and then if you need to contact somebody in my Rolodex, I'm not gonna say, what, no, I'm gonna remember how much whiskey we drank at Mastermind Talks or hanging out in LA <laughs> or something like that, and it's gonna be like, oh yeah, I trust you not to create friction in this relationship. Is that something you think of consciously? Because people can always ask for warm introductions from people that they know, but often they get told no because if somebody that I have a medium to negative impression of, or just not a very favorable impression of, and I don't even mean disfavorable, I just mean they're not standing out as a stellar person that I know quite well in my head, I might say no because there might be enough risk there where I don't want to introduce them to Shaquille O'Neal's manager because that could go poorly for me and make me look bad. That's imperative. Um, I've had people that have offered me a lot of money to get next to someone and I've had to turn it down because they were too volatile and they would burn the relationship I have. 
So you have to focus on the relationships as fuel, as breath, as food. And it has to be the most important thing to you because if you sell it for a bit of money now and then it's gone, you're not going to be able to go back down there. And they are fragile. Relationships can be hurt. And especially if you're dealing with people in the public eye, celebrities, business icons, rock stars, anything like that, if you give them an idiot that upsets their day, you're not getting the second chance to get through that door, regardless of how many years you built that relationship. Right. You can really build a relationship over a long period of time, and then one moment can sour the entire thing. So it's really hard to build and really easy to destroy. It's like a spider web. It is fragile. So you've really got to look after that. And Based on what you were saying as well, we've all got beer buddies. We've all got mates that we would go and have a drink with. And then we've got friends. I believe there's a great divide between who sits in the mates and the pal category and who sits in the friend category. And those friends, you'll support them. You'll let them sleep on your couch. You'll help them out when they need. You'll pull in favors for them. But your mates, you know them at an arm's length. And if they come forward, they've really got to validate why you should do something for them. And it's only when they get into the friend zone that you're actually willing to stick your nose out for them. How do you keep people at top of mind? I mean, are there ways that you manage your network, that you keep it fresh? I use Contactually, I've talked about this a lot, where I add people into buckets. I often will also scroll to the bottom of my texts on my phone. Those are the people, of course, that you haven't texted in a year and a half, or usually, in my case, a few months, because I do this regularly and spend five minutes each morning doing it. Do you use a system? Are you constantly engaging with people to maintain things? Because it is easy for guys like us to be like, all right, out of sight, out of mind. We know hundreds or even thousands of people. We can't keep them all top of mind. What do you do to systemize this for yourself? Well, I don't know thousands. I was faced with an opportunity many years ago, or decision, should I say. I either have a lot of people spending 10 bucks with me, or I have a few people spending a million bucks with me. I went for the million buck bit. I have very few clients that I look after, and it's less than 300. So all of those, believe it or not, are on an Excel spreadsheet. And then I have my top vendors and partners and suppliers. And if I've built a relationship like, for example, say, the Vatican, that will be in there. And what I will do is I will literally go through that list over a six-month period and then start again at the beginning and then make sure that every week I go through 10 connections. And of course, you can search in, you can put in their themes like Contactually, which is a great program. And I do remember you talking about that. You can search by theme. You can put little sub notes in there. If you find out the person you're dealing with is a great fan of Ferrari, you can tag him with Ferrari. So you can put all these different buckets that if something comes up to my attention where I've got a party because they're unveiling a new Ferrari, I can actually go into my bucket list and look at who I've tagged with that and then reach out to them. And it doesn't matter where they are in the planet, especially with my community because they travel so much. But I can reach out to a client I've got in Melbourne and tell them about a party that's going on on Tuesday on the unveiling. Doesn't matter if he goes or not. The power that I thought of him to invite him was all that mattered. And so I go through the vendors just as much as I do the clients just to say, hey, thank you. Hey, we haven't spoken for a while. Do you remember when we last spoke, you were talking about this? I just wanted to check in with you after six months, find out if you had got over that injury, if you had lost the weight, if you had managed to get into London like you were thinking. And you just make a note of the topics that you were talking about. 
And here's a really easy one. When I'm talking to a client, I'll make it an appointment in my Outlook. And I will make notes of that call in that Outlook. And then what I will do following that call is I will just then re-forward it, reassign it for six months in the future. So six months from now, I'm looking at my calendar. I see on Tuesday, I've got to speak to Jordan. I can see the notes I made from the last conversation. And I can see on the last notes, he was looking at getting a dog. So I can go to Jordan and go, hey, just on me chatting, did you ever get that dog? And nine times out of 10, you won't even know what the bloody hell I'm talking about because you'll forget and you'll go, oh, God, yo, what's it? Nah, I got a cat. You know, and I can go, oh, God, and I'll put in there, got a cat. And then again, at the end of the call, I can put it in like four and a half months or five months. I will literally rebook it into the future with those notes on it. Makes it very easy for you. And you don't have to think about it because you wake up on the Tuesday and you look at what phone calls or what appointments you've got for that week. You're already in there. That's great. So you set up reminders for yourself and systemize it in that way. And since you have so few folks, you can craft something that makes sense for you to actually reach out and take another look at your own notes and figure out what to do. Why do you have this preference, by the way, for physical mail? You're probably the only person I know that does that. I know people are big on, well, send everybody a handwritten thank you note because no one does that. But I've heard that advice so much and yet I've probably gotten one or two handwritten notes over the last three to six months that weren't from just show fans. So there's a lot of people who preach this but don't actually practice this. And I know that you live in hotels. I've seen some hotel stationery and I'm thinking, wow, you know, you sent me something on your stationery. It's it's very unusual. Well, I'm a great believer in, you know, go where it's quieter and everyone emails. So it's like a noisy rock concert. You can't have a conversation in it. I've also thought to myself, how many fingers does it take to delete an email? Now, the simple answer is one. How many fingers does it take to delete or open an envelope? Yeah, I'm going to open the whole thing, look at it. Exactly. And here's the other beautiful thing. When you're looking at your emails, you're looking at other things. You may be going through your emails while reading the actual email from somebody else while checking your phone or waiting for your coffee in Starbucks or whatever. When you get a letter... You're holding something with two hands. You try and open up a letter with one hand. So you're now engaged. You can feel it. You can hear it. You can smell it. If it's got on there that it's the Hotel de Russi in Rome, it's now engaging. Who the bloody hell sends me a letter from Rome? You open it up. There's sound. Pull it out. And there's a bar tab in there. And on the back of the bar tab, it says, Hey, Jordan, I had four whiskeys tonight. Two of them, I was thinking of you. All the best. I'll call you later. Steve. Now, it's humorous. It's engaging. It's different. But the amount of times I go away and I will send this stuff out, usually when I'm on a plane, because plane's quite dead time. So I will use that airplane time to just do something. And I think you recall, I used to love putting SkyMall sheets in an envelope. I'd pick up the SkyMall where there's the, the skeleton back scratcher or the dolphin letterbox, and I would rip it out, silver Sharpie on it. If you're ever going to move, you need a dolphin letterbox. All the best, Steve. Call me later. And I will send it to someone. I'll get off the plane, post them all out, and then people will call me or email me and go, you're an idiot. Why do I need a dolphin letterbox or something? But 
there's that engagement again. Oh, I was in Italy and I was thinking of you. I was in Croatia and I just thought I'd send you that bar tab. You know, it's just a way of getting the communication. Now, email's great at qualifying and confirming, hey, we spoke on the phone about, you know, your holiday plans. Have I got this right? You know, email's great for that. But in the world of communication, and especially when you're selling expensive things, as you made the point earlier, one-on-one voice, and if you can't do voice, get the other senses involved. And that's where letters are good. Video texting is brilliant. Voicemail. We're going down a sliding scale now, but email is basically the last of those for communication. You're listening to The Art of Charm with Jordan Harbinger and our guest, Steve Sims. Stick around and we'll get right back to the show after these important messages. Over the last 17 years, we have launched our fair share of online courses, coaching programs, and finding the right platform has always been a challenge. They say if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. But if you're an entrepreneur, you know the hard work that comes with it. That's why you need Kajabi. Kajabi makes it easy to run your entire online business from one platform so you can focus on what you love, creating. Kajabi is the ultimate all-in-one platform that helps creators and entrepreneurs build successful online businesses by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. No matter your niche, Kajabi makes it easy to turn your skills, passions, and experiences into enriching online courses, exclusive membership sites, subscription podcasts, thriving communities, personalized coaching, and more. The best part? Kajabi doesn't cut into your revenue because everything is owned and controlled by you. So keep 100% of what you earn. And with Kajabi, you also get robust analytics, easy payment options, email marketing tools, and customizable website templates all built in. You don't even need a huge audience to make sustainable income. There are thousands of creators on Kajabi making six and seven figures with less than 50,000 followers. Right now, Kajabi is offering a free 30-day trial to start your business if you go to kajabi.com slash charm. That's K-A-J-A-B-I dot com slash charm. Go to kajabi dot com slash charm and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over $7 billion. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Thanks for listening and supporting The Art of Charm. To learn more about our sponsors, visit theartofcharm.com slash advertisers. Now let's get back to Jordan and Steve Sims. Interesting. It makes sense that you prioritize this because you have so many clients that are higher end, right? If you're looking at the six and seven figure clients only, but with higher end clients comes more demanding clientele, right? You must have people that are overstepping their bounds no matter what they are giving you. They might be paying you a lot, but there's gonna be some people where you just think, how do I deal with this person? Because you have fewer clients, you have to serve them better, but there's always gonna be some people who aren't happy at all. How do you keep those people happy or what do you do with people that are just perpetually unhappy? So there's two things. For a start, I interview, as you know, my website, and we're not here to pitch my website, but my website doesn't have a phone number on it. There's no way for you to contact me unless you, A, 
get referred to me, or B, apply straight off the bat. There's no way of you phoning up going, hey, I saw you on TV. I wanted to ask you some questions. Ah, that's not happening. So once you've actually come to us by application or referral, we appoint a time on both routes for an interview. We interview every single applicant before we take them on as a member. Okay, Quite simply, our souls don't get better with time. So we interview them thoroughly at the beginning to find out what do you want. Now, the award season, all the a-holes come out because, oh, I'm in the movie industry. I want to go to the Oscars because I want to sit next to so-and-so. And this is... You get all that kind of business, and that will just implode your clients, and that will just get rid of all your vendors and your partners and your relationships. So we have to kill all those and go, hey, we're not the company for you. Thank you very much for reaching out. All the best. Good luck with the acting career. We're not the ones for you. So we interview absolutely everyone right at the beginning. If you interview them before they come into your family, you save 99% of the problems. Now, on to the next step. How do you keep your clients happy? We only ever sell them 80% of what they're getting. So when they say, hey, I want to do this, and I want to do this, nine times out of 10, they're not thinking as big as we are. So they come to us and they go, hey, I want to meet the rock band. We actually stick them on stage with the rock band. So we always surpass or give them more than we've promised them. That gives you that wiggle room in case something doesn't work out, you can fill it in with something else. The clients that actually paid to close down the academia, they actually asked me, and they paid for the academia. I told them I was going to get a local singer to serenade them. I didn't tell them it was going to be Andrea Bocelli. I always give people what they pay for, but it's only ever 80% of the experience they actually get. I always over-deliver. If you can do that, you give yourself that great buffer. Perfect. Right. So you have to make sure that you are curating on the front end, not just trying to trim after you get into a relationship. Oh, yeah. How do you handle the conversation when you do need to fire an energy vampire? How do you handle that tactically? Because it seems like that could be a messy situation. (laughs) I don't. Quite simply, why would you politely ask a rat to leave your kitchen? You don't. So if someone's in your life that's not complimenting it, assisting it, growing it, being a value in it, entertaining you in it, making you smile in it. It's a cancer. And you don't politely ask cancer to leave your body. You cut it out as harshly and as rapidly as possible. So I get hold of them and I'm like, Jordan, hey, thank you very much for everything you're doing. But you know, there's not a fit. So we're not going to be having this conversation tomorrow. I wish you all the best, but it's not going to be here. And that's it. That's the end of the conversation. I get rid of salespeople, I get rid of partners, vendors, clients, anyway, I get rid of them quickly and precisely because if they've got to that situation, they're a cancer in my life and they need to be cut out quickly, swiftly, and to a point that they can't come back in. That needs to be a bridge that needs to be nuked and needs to be radioactive that they can't cross again. Make it crystal clear, this is not a fit. And so I'm going to make the decision that we don't continue. Appreciate it, but it's not right. I wish you all the best. You're known for being really authentic all the time. And I hate that word. I know. I hate it, too. I was actually going to comment on it. It's a it's a terrible word because it's so overused. And I think a lot of people fall into this trap of trying too hard to be authentic and therefore not being authentic 
because it's like, oh, I'm trying to be myself. So you've heard all these kind of D-bags who say things like, I don't give a fuck, right? No fucks given. But really, they give so many fucks, they're just pushing against things because they've never done it before and they're acting out and that's not who they are at all. So how do we balance that? How do you find out who that is? Because it's very hard to create a relationship if you're being fake in either direction, either uh, inauthentically subdued and self-edited or the other extreme, which is, I don't care about anything. It's like, well, okay, now you're just trying way too hard and it doesn't make sense either. And it's also an off-putting and a turnoff. I'm a great believer that my stomach is more intelligent than my head. When I meet someone, I'm looking for those butterflies. And you can look at someone and they've got an expensive suit. They've got an expensive watch. They're looking good. They're well manicured. But something's just grumbling in your stomach that's making you in a bit uneasy. And I've come to learn to trust that. If I meet someone and something's not quite sitting right in my gut, I walk away from it. And I'm a great believer, not in authenticity. We both agree we hate that word. I'm a great believer in transparency. And that's completely different. I can get on with a dickhead if I know that's who he is. Okay, but if someone's trying to be someone that they're not, I've met intelligent people that are pretending to be rocket scientists. Well, that makes them a fake. If that had just been who they were at the beginning and gone, well, look, I think I'm pretty smart, but I don't know everything. Hey, you can relate to that. But those idiots that actually make out as though they know every answer in the planet, you look at them as an idiot and a fake. So I'm a great believer in be transparent, lead with your stomach, trust your stomach. If the person in front of you is giving you warning signals, cut it off, walk away. And if you want to go back later and try and work out why you're getting those ding-dings, then, you know, good luck to you. But if it doesn't feel right, trust it and walk away from it. That's great. So trusting your gut. How do we know if your gut is accurate? Is this just something that you have because of your upbringing or is this something you think can be trained? I think we all had it and then it got kicked out of us by the age of three. If any of us have got kids out there, I've got three kids and I like some of them. But as the kids are growing up, you go to a schoolyard and the kids walk into a schoolyard. They look around this schoolyard and they go, I'm not going to play with that kid because it's fat. Or I'm not going to play with that kid because it's skinny. Or that kid, and they walk away. They go and play with people who they like. They call each other names and stuff. They're very primitive. And then what happens? A big teacher steps in and goes, no, you can't call Steve Ginger. You know, that's, that's going to affect his feelings. And then you'd start to dilute the child. And all of a sudden the client, well, he has got ginger hair. Yeah, but you can't say that. Yeah, but that person is chubby. Yeah, but we can't say that. All of a sudden you get all these dilutions, which confuse the kid and teach us not to tell the truth, but to dilute it for fear of offending it. All of a sudden it's a vicious circle. And our stomach, our core was good then, and it gets diluted. And then we have to spend the rest of our life training it back to trust our feelings that, hang on, there's something with that kid that I don't want to play with. Okay, so we have to retrain our gut. But I feel like we can't just not teach kids how to behave at all. I think manners is imperative. But I think what I'm talking about is different to manners. I'm talking about your instinct. Now, I was using it in the form of chubby, tall, ginger hair, all that kind of stuff. But our instinct is to resonate with certain people, is to find people that we look at and there's a smell, there's a tone, there's a feeling. 
the person that you just sit next to, like me and you, me and you next to each other, we couldn't be more different, could we? No, we're quite different. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We got chatting before I knew anything about you. If you recall, it was way later after the event that I knew about the podcast and all that kind of stuff. But me and you, we just got on. And so straight away, there was a vibe. There was a feeling. There was a, hey, this guy's interesting. I want to talk to him. And we got on and we now have the relationship that we have. But it never started off by, hey, I run a show or me going, hey, I need you to get me on your show. We never had that conversation. That was way later. You're comfortable in you. And I only want to resonate with people that I find interesting and intriguing. You do this self-audit thing regularly each quarter where you find your strengths and your weaknesses. How do you do this? This can't be something that you just think about while you're riding around on your bike. There's some sort of system to this. First of all, what is this and why do you do it? And then how do you do it? Oh, this is deep and intelligent. This is Peter Diamandos, Elon Musk, Ray Kurzweil, deep intelligence shit here. I invented the chug test. And the chug test goes like this. You're walking down the street, and on the opposite side of the road is someone in your circle. A vendor, a partner, your accountant, your salesperson, your girlfriend, your boyfriend, whatever. Someone that's in your day-to-day or weekly existence. You're faced with two opportunities. A, do you look left and look in the window and pretend you're really interested in a new mattress and wait for that mirrored reflection to walk on by? Or do you run across the road, jump in front of them and go, Jordan, how you doing? I haven't seen you. Let's go chug a beer or have a whiskey or have a coffee. Which one do you do? If it's the first one, that person needs to come out of your life. So I want to be compelled to run across the road to talk to my accountant, my creative director, my uh, marketing people, my salespeople, my clients. I want to surround people in my life that I want to run to because then that also energizes you. And when you're as energetic as that and pumped up because everyone in your life is positive and they're not vampires naysaying and sucking the energy and going, oh, Steve, no, I don't think we should try that. No, that doesn't sound like a good idea to me. And you can turn around and you go, well, why doesn't it? And if they sit there and go, oh, it just doesn't. It does. If they've got no solution or if they've got no reason to be that negative, get them out of your life because they're holding you back. And so I do quite openly, every quarter, you look at your list, do three circles. Who am I tight with? Who do I love? Who do I want to have a beer with? And I just fill people in. And if I meet a new client, in my head, I'll be going, okay, which, which, uh, which bowl were they in? You know, number one, where I'm dedicated. Number two, oh, I'm interested. I like this person. And if they fall into the number three, that's not a conversation. It's like, okay, that person rubbed me up the wrong way. I saw how that person acted at an event. Was there any reason? Had they split up with that girlfriend? Had they lost something? Was there any reason to make them that person? Or are they that person? And if they are that person, they're gone. The person in the middle bubble that I'm on the fence with, okay, how can I find out how to shift them one way or another? And I do that to cultivate it. So every communication I have is with someone I want to converse with. I have no cancer in my relationships. And that's a very important perspective to have. It's a cancer. You have one bad relationship, it will bleed into your others. Like it or not, that person will piss you off. You'll use all your energy to speak to that person. You'll turn around to someone you love, start talking to them, 
and give off that bad aura or give off that negative energy, and that person receiving that conversation from you will be like, well, Sims is a bit off. what's, What's wrong with him? Before you know it, you're starting to put seeded doubt into that relationship and you are passing the cancer along. It needs to be stamped out quick. Yeah, it's interesting how we can put up with something and think, well, I'm just gonna take one for the team or I'm gonna just be a caring person on this one. But really, you're poisoning your entire network because you're inviting that cancer and leaving it in your circle. You think, oh, it's only stressing me out, but really it does bleed into other relationships. It's incredible. I did a speech once where I actually said, put your hand up if there's someone in your life, at your office, in your friend pack, even sitting at your table, put your hand up if there's someone in those areas that you don't like. How many people put their hand up for that table? That would be awkward. I actually wondered how many people were actually referring to someone at that table, but I gave them enough leeway that they could go, no, it's no one at this table, but everyone in the room sticks their hand up. And then I carried on with, you know, that person last Tuesday spoke to your girlfriend, your wife, your kids, your best client, your favorite person. And they'll look at you like, you're a spastic. They didn't do that. But the fact is, when you use up so much energy to converse and try to communicate with someone that you're not resonating with well, you carry that negativity over. So without realizing it, you're the one that's actually carrying it into those other relationships you love. That's interesting, and it happens at a subconscious level, so you really think, I can isolate myself from this, I can insulate other people in my circle from this, but you really can't. It's just like how parents will bring home work stress and take it out on their kids if it exists. This happens in other areas, too, with our friends and in other relationships that we have, and I think a lot of people are blind to that. They don't see that. No, you're right. Sometimes you'll be chatting to your wife or your girlfriend or someone you love, and you'll snap at them. And they'll turn around and they go, whoa, where did that come from? And that's because that relationship is so strong with you, they can call you out on it. But if you're trying to get a new relationship and the relationship isn't strong enough for them to be able to challenge your tone, they're going to look at you and go, well, that person's not very nice. And maybe they'll have another phone call with you because maybe they thought it was a one-off. They're not going to have a third. They're just going to think, well, I don't want to talk to Steve. You know, he's always bloody negative. And you're only negative because the phone call you had before was with an a-hole. Right, it affects your own personality. I'm very familiar with how that goes. Yep, greatly, greatly it does. Hey, fingers off that skip button. We'll be right back with more from Steve Sims after these brief announcements. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and... What do I even say other than, hey? (sighs) Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Thanks for listening and supporting The Art of Charm. Your support keeps us on the air. For a list of all the discounts from our amazing sponsors, visit theartofcharm.com slash advertisers. Now for the conclusion of our interview with Steve Sims. Took me years to realize this. I essentially had problems like this for a long time in my life and I didn't think they were solvable. They seemed unsolvable at the time. And I remember ditching and cutting and trimming these people's influence in my life and I didn't even know that it was possible to be happier or to be stress-free or to have my other relationships improve. 
I remember back when I was single, I used to think like, wow, this is harder than I remember. You know, I used to be really good at the dating stuff. I'm in this dating company, and now I'm suddenly like really regressing in this particular skill set. It became a thing that I just started to not really, quite frankly, understand. And I started to limit other outside influences, and I realized, wow, this was affecting my workouts, my physical health. It was affecting my relationships with women. It was affecting my friendships, and it was impossible. And I had people say, man, you know, it seems like you're having a hard time. And I was just like, oh my God, I thought I was hiding this really well, and I wasn't. Yeah, it's good when you've got those people that are in your camp that can call you out. We all need those people to every now and then just give us a reset and go, oi, oi, you know, can I come back? You're being like a bit of a prick now. How did this manifest itself in your own life? I mean, you used to be kind of, funnily enough, a little more corporate maybe. I mean, you still had clients and things like that, but you were also wearing a costume at that point. I do what all entrepreneurs do when we have successful businesses. We screw them up. You know, when everything's going well as an entrepreneur, you go, well, let me dabble in there, let me try, and you just balls the thing up. I got to a point after about four or five years into becoming this concierge to not just the rich and famous, but the richer and unknown. That was my real sweet spot. I started to do the stupid thing of second guessing them. And they always say about, you know, you assume makes an ass out of you and me. I thought to myself, oh, hang on a minute. I'm turning up in a black T-shirt and on a motorbike. I can't be doing that. I've got to change. Oh, my God, I've got to start wearing a watch. I've got to take my earrings out. I started doing that. Now, I couldn't grow hair, but I literally bought a car. I would turn up to a meeting in a suit, in a tie, wearing like an expensive watch. I was actually discovering that I was being the person that I thought they wanted me to look like for them. I was double-guessing a double-guessing, and it was a pain in the ass. I discovered that my income was actually going up, but my resonating with my clients was going down. I was getting clients that I didn't know, I didn't like, I didn't want to be close. And all of a sudden, I found that I wasn't being true to me. And there's a picture of me working in Monte Carlo with Ferrari in a suit next to a Ferrari. And I saw that picture some weeks later when I got the pictures back. And I looked at it and I realized I wasn't in that picture. I had left the building. Steve Sims had now become this guy in a suit trying to please other people other than himself. I realized that some of my best relationships were going south real fast because I wasn't nurturing them because I was turning up as someone different. I wasn't being transparent. I wasn't being, I hate the word, authentic, real, true, myself. So I did this. I got rid of the car, got rid of the suits, and started turning up again on the motorcycle and jeans just wondering, maybe it wasn't me. Maybe the marketplace had changed. And do you know, I met this guy in a bar that I'd seen many, many times. He wasn't a friend. I don't even know the guy's name. I had gone to this party every single month, and he turned up, and he saw me, and he went, hey, Steve, how are you doing? Haven't seen you here for months. Now, I'd never, ever missed one of those parties, but he was accurate. I hadn't actually been there this pseudo-Sims had in the suit and tie trying to be someone that he wasn't. And luckily, my wife caught it and I caught it enough to be able to go back to just being who I was and being impossible to misunderstand. That's so interesting that he didn't even recognize you while you were there. He was probably thinking, should I tell him about that douchebag that looks just like him? Nah, he might be offended. He might know who that is. (laughs) 
You're so accurate, though. It was a very dark period. But as business people, we look at success as money. And then sometimes we try to to double guess too many times and, and end up becoming someone that we're really not. What was the stop and reset process like? You said that your wife had called it out and close friends had called it out. What happened right after that? What did they say and how did you feel right away? Did you reject it and say, ah, you don't know what you're talking about? Or did you stop and think? And then what did you change? What actions did you take? It was as subtle as a right hook to my jaw. This was back like 97. And this was back in the days when um, you didn't have digital cameras. So you took loads of photographs, you sent the roll of film off in an envelope. And somewhere in the next three years, you got the envelope back with your pictures. And it had been, I don't know, maybe a month after coming back from the Monte Carlo Formula One Grand Prix, I'm in my office in Switzerland going through these pictures. I saw this picture and it was so strong that it stopped me. And my wife came in and picked up the picture and she made the comment, that ain't you. And quite simply, I did probably not what I should have done, but I spent the next few days just getting blindly drunk, shutting down. I know you find that hard to believe. Yeah, I can't, I can't even imagine. <laughs> I just didn't speak to anyone. Something had gone wrong, and I couldn't work out why. Here I am in Monte Carlo working for Ferrari, having some of the biggest parties, but it wasn't right. And so it was a disconnect. So I didn't know how to be. And so it was a case of, hang on, something's not right. I don't know what it is. Now, anyone that does golfing or any kind of sport like that, they always teach you, go back to the basics. Now, any kid that's ever done karate will remember something called the catters. And you turn up and it's like, punch one, punch two. Yeah. And no matter how good you get, they still have you doing those drills and those forms. Because it's the basics that sharpen you. And it was that moment, and I used to do kickboxing as a kid, it was that moment that I thought to myself, something's wrong, I need to go back to the foundations. I need to go back to the, to the forms. I need to go back to basics. I need to find out where this is broke. I don't know where it's broke. I'm making money, I'm in the right areas, but something's broke because it hurts in my stomach and I need to find out why. And that's why I went back to just motorbike and black t-shirt and jeans to discover where had I slipped up. I was actually looking for something. I was looking to turn up at a party and for everyone to look more glamorous and for me to be able to go, oh, it's not me. The parties have changed. Oh, it's not me. Something else has changed. But no, it was me. And luckily we caught it. Do you think you were blinded to it at first? Because when you grew up kind of blue collar you were thinking success looks like suits and fancy crap. And so you resisted going back to the basics because you felt like you'd worked maybe really hard to get away from that in the first place. You no, know, you're absolutely right. For anyone that didn't listen to the first podcast we did, for a start, why not go back and listen to it? It's like five years old, but go ahead at your own risk. We're both far less accomplished by then. <laughs> so for me, quite simply, I remember seeing a guy that had a, a cell phone the size of a suitcase. And it was literally one of those that was attached. Do you remember those? Oh, yeah. It's called a bag phone. Yeah. 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 I remember seeing one of those guys in London and just thinking to myself, that guy's made it. That's the man. I want to walk in his shadows. I want to carry his bag. As a bricklayer, I wore black T-shirt and jeans and rode around on motorcycles. I'm 51 years old now, living in Hollywood. 
I wear a black T-shirt and jeans, and I'm actually doing this from my garage of motorcycles. So I've gone full circle. But there was a period of time when I thought success was the Ferrari, was the Porsche, was the flashy Rolex, was the cell phones. And I had all those little success traits that I needed to achieve because, like the idiot and all of us, once I've got those, I'll have made it. And we've all got those little goalposts until we get there and we go, well, where is it? You know, what's happened? Is it moved? But yeah, I think you're very accurate there that for a long time, I felt that once I'd made it into that suit and car, then I could physically say that I'd made it or mentally could say that I'd made it. I totally see that because I can see how growing up in one way would obviously inform you as an adult. And for you, I hear this a lot where kids who I've grown up with less say things like, I really want this type of car. And I'm like, well, are you into cars? Well, not, not really. Well, then why do you want an expensive car? It's a terrible investment. Well, you know, rich people have nice cars. Well, who cares? It's a terrible investment. They get nice cars last usually, right? The other things are in order first. And it's because of a lack of understanding about what the trappings of wealth do for you. So it looks like the goal when really it's not, it has nothing to do with that at all. But from the outside looking in, that's what it looks like to somebody who doesn't have, it looks like that's what wealth is. So I can understand falling into that trap. Yeah, that was around the same period, and I'm only bringing this up because you used the word, that I actually found the divide between rich and wealth and realized that rich, in my definition, was how much money you had, and wealth was how much you had in your world and life. And I went for wealth over richness. Not an easy choice, especially when you've been wanting richness your entire life. It's one of those things, it's like the people that go, oh, once I make a million dollars, then I can retire. We all know that unless you're living in the, the middle of the Bahoonies, you ain't retiring on a million dollars anymore. No. There was that time frame, like when you're 15 years old, do you think that's everything? You know, I'm now dealing in contracts where that's flowing through my account every third day, and it's not making me any richer. But I am very much focused on wealth, and wealth is how comfortable you feel with you, how happy you are with you how much in love you are in your family, your friends, your relationships. Do you have enough gas in the tank? Do you have enough whiskey in the house? That to me is wealth. It's all about that whiskey cabinet for you. I'm sensing a pattern here. <laughs> it's been there right from the word go. Yeah, I'm afraid it has. I want to wrap with a really great practical. This is something obviously that's central to your business and one of the skill sets that you're well known for. You call this rephrasing your ask. And you've recommended in the past, in pre-show we discussed this a little bit, that people should never ask a question where no could be the answer. And I would love if you would demonstrate ways in which we can rephrase typical business or maybe personal asks so that they lead to a conversation where people will reveal their need and then you can offer to fulfill it. So there's an art to asking these questions. The way that you do this is such that no is never really an option. Unless you want it to be. Unless you want it to be, sure. You've already given the answer there. The only reason for the ask is to draw you into a conversation. So when you contact the academia, a museum in Florence, because you want them to close at three o'clock in the afternoon so you can prepare a dinner of six at the feet of Michelangelo's David, where they won't even allow food and drink in the museum, and there you are wanting to bring in catering staff, you need to position it so it engages them. So you contact them and hopefully you've gone through a warm lead so that you can get them to at least listen for a few more seconds than normal. 
but you approach them and say, hey, how are you doing? Um, my name's Steve Sims. I'm not well known for doing the magical and the amazing. And I want to do something that involves you that's so passionate, so wonderful, that you alone are going to be talking about it for the next few months. Do you mind if I continue? So you're straight away trying to get them a bit engaged in the proposal, in the passion, in the dream of it. And again, no money's been mentioned. You don't phone them up and go, hey, I want to take over your museum on Tuesday night. Can I do that? That has got to be the stupidest positioning known to mankind because the shortest answer in anyone's vocabulary is no. Just out of reaction, if they didn't even hear the question properly, they're going to go, uh, no. Now, once I've got them to buy into the passion of it, then I did actually ask a question. I said to them, I've got to ask you this. Has this ever been done before? And of course, I was waiting for the thing. They turned around and they went, no, it hasn't, of which I responded with, fantastic. We're making history. You know, this is the first. It's happened. You want to position the ask that it's engaging to them. You're getting into a conversation. You're compelling them to want to push this forward. There's nothing better than getting them into a position where they're an advocate, that they're actually running through their office, telling everyone in their office why this needs to happen. They've now become your cheerleader. And that's got to be done by positioning the ask in a way that compels them to want to be part of making something wonderful happen. It makes it wonderful because it's telling them also this benefits you. It's benefiting you through media. It's benefiting you through marketability. It's benefiting you through branding, telling people about your location, your charity, your event, how brilliant you are, your tour. Whenever I've gone to a rock star and I've wanted to get a rock star to actually meet one of my clients, thank you so much for getting on the phone with me. I want to talk to you about what my client wants to do. I hear you're going on concert and you're doing 16 shows. I'd love to let my team know about this. But before I get into that, let me tell you what I want for my people. So you're dangling the nugget that there's going to be something in it for them. Right off the bat, what's in it for them? Because they know you've got an ask, but I'm actually giving you a give before I give you my ask. This is perfect. It's open-ended questions instead of requests and framing the conversation in such a way where it's how can I make this happen or what needs to happen in order for X to happen. So there's never a no involved and there's always that carrot dangled right there. So it's, of course, leading with what they want, but it goes deeper than that. I love that. I'm stealing this. Thank you so much, Steve. <laughs> always a pleasure, man. And we got to hang at Mastermind Talks next time. Are you going this coming year? I will be. Invited or not, I will be. <laughs> right on. Well, I'll look for you in, uh, in the motorcycle shirt and jeans as usual. <laughs> I'll be there. Cheers, pal. Thank you. Jason, that one was, he's, like I said, I told you he's kind of out there in a really cool, fun way. And he's a really awesome person to hang out with, as you might imagine. Dude, uh, when I was prepping for this show, he looks like Steve Austin, but when he came on, he sounds like Austin Powers. Uh, maybe, maybe a little Steve Austin, Austin Powers combo. I could see that. Yeah, no, totally threw me for a loop. What a fun show. Yeah, I didn't mention this on the show, and I don't know why. Every year he invites me to the Oscars, and every year he's like, hey, I'm sitting at Elton John's table. Do you want to join me? I've never made it. I know it's the Oscars and it's Elton John's table. Eventually I will make it. But that's the kind of circles this guy rolls in. He's not like, hey, I can get you into some cool club in New York. It's like, no, do you want to have dinner at Elton John's house and sit with him at the Oscars and kick it? That's the level he's playing at here. What the hell's wrong with you, man? Get on a plane. Get down there. You got to do that. What can I say? I even like Elton John's music. 
I'm always doing something. You know, L.A. during Oscars is just kind of a zoo, so that's been part of it as well. But great big thank you to Steve Sims. The book title is Blue Fishing, The Art of Making Things Happen. Of course, that'll be linked up in the show notes for this episode. And if you enjoyed this one, don't forget to thank Steve on Twitter. We'll have that linked in the show notes, as always. And tweet at me your number one takeaway from Steve Sims. I'm at The Art of Charm on Twitter, and I'm at Jordan Harbinger on Instagram. Don't forget about that worksheet we've got for today's episode. This is where you can make sure you solidify your understanding of the key takeaways from Steve Sims. The link to the worksheets is in theartofcharm.com slash podcast in the show notes for this episode. And don't forget about the Art of Charm challenge as well at theartofcharm.com slash challenge. The challenge is about improving your networking and connection skills, just like Steve Sims talked about today, inspiring those around you to develop personal and professional relationships with you. The challenge is free, it's unisex, it's designed to help you get some forward momentum and get the ball rolling and apply the things you learn here on the show to your life every day. We'll also send you our fundamentals toolbox that I mentioned earlier on the show, of course. That includes some great stuff, that practical, applicable stuff that you can apply right away on body language, nonverbal communication, the science of attraction, negotiation techniques, networking and influence strategies of the like you heard today, and some persuasion tactics, and everything else that we teach here on the show and at our live programs at The Art of Charm. This stuff will make you a better critical thinker, it'll make you a better networker, it'll make you a better relationshipper, which is not a word, but it will help you in so many ways that are intangible. I'm determined to force you at, by hook or by crook to make you give it a shot. Go to theartofcharm.com slash challenge, dip your toes in the water, you will dig it, I promise. This episode of The Art of Charm, as always, produced by Jason DeFilippo. Jason Sanderson is our audio engineer and editor, making my voice sound as rich and buttery as it always does. Show notes on the website are by Robert Fogarty. Transcriptions by transcriptionoutsourcing.net. And I'm your host, Jordan Harbinger. If you can think of anyone who might benefit from what you've just heard, please pay us the highest compliment and pay it forward. Share it with that person. It takes a moment. Great ideas are meant to be shared. And share the show with your friends. Stay charming and leave everything and everyone better than you found them.